All right. Welcome to Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. It's 3.03 on your Friday afternoon, January 20th, 2006. It is difficult to have a reasonable debate about the Israel-Palestine conflict when any criticism of Israel gets one branded an anti-Semite, a Jew-hater, or a self-hating Jew. My guest today is Professor of Political Science at DePaul University, Norman G. Finkelstein, who's been called all those names and worse. In his latest book, Beyond Chutzpah, on the misuse of anti-Semitism and the abuse of history, he, dem- he demonstrates with scholarly precision how extreme Israel apologists, through various and unscholarly means, yes, including name-calling, make sure we get a one-sided view of the situation. So we're going to try to... Uh, Pull that back in a little bit different direction today. Uh, before we get started, I would like to remind you that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. Professor Finkelstein, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you. Um, yeah, um, your book, Beyond Hutzpah on the Misuse of Anti-Semitism and the Abuse of History, is in large part a response to Harvard Law Professor and Attorney Alan Dershowitz's book, The Case for Israel. The title of your book also being a play on words of his other book titled Chutzpah. Uh, for our listeners who have no familiarity with uh, Hebrew or Yiddish, uh, Chutzpah, spelled C-H-U-T-Z-P-A-H, is a word that basically means uh, audacity or utter nerve. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, there are two classic. The classic definition of Chutzpah is when a person kills his parents and then goes before the judge and begs for mercy because he's an orphan. Okay. I think that makes it pretty clear. So what most glaringly is beyond chutzpah about Dershowitz's uh, book, The Case for Israel? Well, the book is coming out under the name of the senior-most professor at Harvard Law School, uh, the Felix Frankfurter Chair at Harvard, namely uh, Professor Dershowitz. And one can say that large parts of the book are plagiarized. That's number one. Number two, the book he plagiarizes from is a well-known hoax. Number three, large parts of the claims in the book are simply made up. And number four, large parts of the book are based on misrepresenting and mangling the documentary evidence. If you put all four of those together, fabricating evidence, mangling evidence, plagiarism and plagiarizing from a hoax, if you put them all together, I think it's fair to say that the book itself is a hoax. And one one of the main conclusions he comes to is that Israel has a uh, stellar human rights record. Right. If you plagiarize material from a hoax, if you fabricate and mangle evidence, then you can reach that conclusion. If you reach, if you use mainstream scholarly sources, uh, respected human rights organizations like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the Israeli Information Center for Human Rights in the Occupied Territories, Physicians for Human Rights, if you res- if you use mainstream respected human rights organizations, the only conclusion you can reach is that Israel's human rights record is abysmal. Mm-hmm. Now, Professor Dershowitz went to some rather extreme measures to try to prevent uh, publication of your book. Can you tell us a little about that? 
Well, he began when my original publisher was New Press, a respected um, commercial publishing house in New York. He began by writing a series of single-spaced, multi-page letters to New Press, uh, three of which I've posted on my website, uh, each of which runs to about five or six, six pages, single-spaced, uh, making all manner of accusation against me. Uh, at some point, I think it was in October 2000, uh, 2004, I switched publishers to University of California Press. He then began to bombard them with letters and threats. Uh, they had the book, what's called peer-reviewed, which basically means other scholars working in the field examine the manuscript. They had the book peer-reviewed by seven uh, very prominent scholars. The usual process is two scholars who are called outside readers examined the book. In my case, it was seven, including a university chair at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, a chair at Oxford University, a senior researcher at Harvard, a university chair at MIT, and a university chair at uh, Berkeley. Uh, a chair, for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with the term, it's the senior most position in an academic institution. It basically means you've reached a level of stature that you can teach in any of the departments or divisions of the university. You have that level of competence. So my book was peer-reviewed by seven, uh, seven outside readers, five of whom were university chairs, and six of whom were Jewish. And they all gave the book a very enthusiastic thumbs up. Uh, when Professor Dershowitz couldn't work on that front, he then conscripted the most powerful law firm, what's reputed to be the most powerful law firm in the country, Cravath, Swain, and Moore, which began to bombard the press and the University of California, of which the press is an affiliate or subsidiary, began to bombard them with threatening letters. And the university press, for good reason, began to worry. I won't say panic, but certainly worry. Mm -hmm. And then they had the manuscript vetted by five libel lawyers, an American libel lawyer, a British libel lawyer, an in-house libel lawyer, an out-house libel lawyer, and another libel lawyer from New York. So they had five libel lawyers uh, go through the manuscript. Uh, and at that point, Professor Dershowitz began to panic that it was going to survive his threats. Uh, and he then went to the governor of California, the Terminator, Governor Schwarzenegger, uh, to try to stop publication of the book. Uh, Professor uh, Schwarzenegger, to his credit, said this is a matter of academic freedom and he wouldn't uh, intervene. And finally, the book came out. And it's out there now, and it's it can be <laughs> purchased by anyone, and it's you know Barnes and Noble, wherever you, you get your book online, or and it's um, and Dershowitz uh, has has he pretty much backed off now, or is he accepting that your book has has met all of the uh, possible rigors that a book could possibly go through? Well, I would say in the last analysis, probably Dershowitz was successful. Uh, in his tactics, uh, because number one, he managed to personalize 
the issues. It began, to, it began as a discussion of Israel's human rights record, and he successfully turned it into a sandbox fight between myself and him. Uh, and that allowed reviewers to take the moral high ground and claim, well, we're not reviewing this book because it's a sandbox fight. And accordingly, even though the book has now been out for four or four and a half months, and even though the book received a huge amount of pre-publication publicity due to Dershowitz's threatened lawsuits, which became became, became a matter of public um, knowledge, and even though the book dealt with what's obviously a burning topic, the Israel-Palestine conflict, and even though one of the protagonists is a senior-most professor at Harvard Law School, as well as a prominent public personality, and even though the book dealt with issues having to do with plagiarism and fraud and all sorts of other things, notwithstanding all of that, the book hasn't received a single, not one, literally not one, uh, mainstream review in the United States. Now, you haven't seen this sort of party discipline uh, since the days of the glorious leader of uh, People's Albania, Anver Hoxha. It's a very impressive display of unity and party discipline, uh, complete silencing uh, uh, by the entire across the board from liberal, left liberal, you know, magazines like The Nation and The Progressive to the other side of the spectrum, uh, the right-wing side of the spectrum. Nothing. The book never happened. So in my opinion... Ultimately, Professor Dershowitz succeeded. And there, part of this is people are... Incidentally, I doubt you will find it at your local Barnes & Noble. Uh, actually, I, I found it at our local border, so uh, uh, it's out there at some places. So, but, so what is it that these uh, reviewers uh, are, are so afraid of? Are they afraid they're going to get labeled an anti-Semite for even reviewing the book? Well, no, I don't think that's the issue. I think there are several issues. Number one, perhaps it's true that a number of publications simply don't want to tangle with Professor Dershowitz. They know if they review the book, the hysterical letters are going to come, the hysterical phone calls, uh, and so on and so forth, and a lot of people just don't want to be bothered with it. Number two, uh, it reveals some uh, very ugly things about how pro-Israel propaganda operates in the United States, uh, the levels at which it reaches, you know, the senior-most professor at Harvard Law School. And it raises serious questions about the institution to which Professor Dershowitz is affiliated. What does it say about Harvard Law School and Harvard University in general that its senior-most professor is a plagiarist? He plagiarizes a hoax. He fabricates evidence. He falsifies and mangles documents. That reflects rather poorly, I think, on the institution. And then, of course, it reflects rather poorly. You have to bear in mind that Professor Dershowitz's book was a national bestseller. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons it reached that stature was because of the glowing reviews it received in places like the New York Times, the Boston Globe, and elsewhere. So what does it say about the New York Times book review? Incidentally, their book review was written by a fellow named Ethan Bronner, who sits on the New York Times' editorial board and is their resident expert on the Israel-Palestine conflict. He writes their editorials on the subject so what does it say about the New York Times? What does it say about its experts 
that they rave about a book which is a preposterous, utterly ridiculous hoax. Well, people don't want to address those issues. Surely the Times doesn't want to address it. So you're saying the, the publishers and, and the reviewers, if they uh, come out and, and give your book its due, then they have to admit that they all let a hoax just slip by and nobody said a word about it. Well, I don't think it's an issue just of slip by, because if a book is utterly preposterous, an expert ought to be able to see that on a very cursory reading. The fact that they didn't see it says something very serious about the nature of their scholarship and their understanding. It's not a question of slip by, I don't think. Okay, <laughs> it's much more serious than that. So you, you're saying that there's also there's a, a sort of managing of reality here in the U.S., a, a contrivance of what the situation actually is in Israel-Palestine. And, and who, who are the players and how do they make that work? You know, that's, that, um, that aspect is so internalized and systematized that it's very hard to pin down the inner workings of it. Uh, it operates at so many levels with such degrees of subtlety and internalized knowledge. You take somebody from the New York Times, like their education, uh, a person who does the education beat for the, uh, the Times, a woman by the name of Sarah Reimer, R-I-M-E-R. Well, you may know that there were, or your listeners may know, there were several scandals this past year with plagiarism at Harvard, one having to do with another senior professor by the name of Lawrence Tribe, a very prominent liberal uh, uh, law professor. And then there was another case of a fellow named Charles Ogletree, who some of you may remember as one of uh, Anita Hill's supporters during that episode. Mm -hmm. Well, Ogletree and Tribe were found to have significantly plagiarized. And Sarah Reimer wrote a very big article for the Times on the cases of Tribe and Ogletree. Notably, she didn't say anything about Dershowitz. Now, it was going on exactly, exactly at the same time as the Tribe and Ogletree cases. Well, I called her up and I asked her out of curiosity, why did you omit any mention of Dershowitz? It would seem to be relevant. And she she just burst into a rant, you know, the audacity of anyone to question her, uh, her uh, objectivity on the matter. And then I read Dershowitz's new, uh, assuming he wrote it, his new book called The Case for Peace, and there's a quote by Sarah Reimer. She's quoted as saying, and I think I have it pretty much verbatim, I can't even understand... I can't even understand how you could be accused of plagiarism, speaking to Dershowitz. <laughs> now, it takes a very high level of party discipline not to even understand. Now, you could say, I read Finkelstein's stuff, and I don't agree. Now, in my opinion, it would still require a high level of party discipline to disagree. The evidence of plagiarism, which I document in 25 pages in my book, is pretty overwhelming. 
So you can say, I don't agree, and I would find even that difficult to uh, swallow. But she goes one step further. She can't even understand the allegation. You know, this is a level of party discipline, which is really, you know, by even in the annals of the 20th century, uh, Stalin's Communist Party or uh, Kim Il-sung's closest uh, uh, followers, you haven't had levels of discipline like that in a very, very long time. These are fanatics. These are complete zealots. They have so internalized the party line, the party line being... When it comes to Israel, whatever you say, if it's good, it's true. It just is. It's true. Uh, that's the sort of people you're dealing with. Mm. This is Out the Rabbit Hole on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson speaking today with Professor Norman G. Finkelstein. We're discussing his book, Beyond Chutzpah, on the misuse of anti-Semitism and the abuse of history. Professor Dershowitz, I'm, I'm, excuse me, Professor Finkelstein, you make the case that it seems... You're not excused. <laughs> I, I totally apologize. <laughs> you make the case that it seems that whenever there is a legitimate widespread outcry against a real Israeli injustice, we start getting cries that there is a reemergence of anti-Semitism worldwide, and, and this works as an immunization against uh, criticism of Israel. Could you give us a couple of g- examples of that? Well... The important point is you have to have a historical memory, which most people don't, no fault to them, uh, that every time there is a, a um, Israel comes under uh, international pressure to resolve the Israel-Palestine conflict diplomatically, or there's a public relations debacle, you know, something like uh, Sabra and Shatila, which for Israel is, you know, it's not a crime, it's a public relations debacle. And every time there is either of those, the international pressure or public relations debacle, Israel goes into damage control. And the main form of damage control which they uh, resort to is to claim a resurgent anti-Semitism. So most of you or many of your listeners will be familiar with this recent claim of a new anti-Semitism. It was the cover story of at least a half dozen major magazines and journals. It was the subject of at least six widely reviewed books on the topic. But if you go back, say, to 1974, uh, the head of the Anti-Defamation League, for those of you who don't know what the Anti-Defamation League is, it's the main Jewish defense organization, and its main purpose is to defame anyone who criticizes Israel. Uh, the Anti-Defamation League puts out a book called The New Anti-Semitism, and it claims there's a resurgent new anti-Semitism in the world. In 1981, the new head of the ADL puts out a book called The Real Anti-Semitism, and it's about a new anti-Semitism. And this goes on and on. Uh, it's a public, you know, it's a, it's a production. It's an extravaganza like, you know, Fiddler on the Roof, or uh, The Sound of Music, which is periodically revived. And then they go on, on the road, uh, usually starring Eli Wiesel, the biggest hoaxer of all. Uh, he's sent the ring, uh, go touring the country. 
And now you're not saying that anti-Semitism doesn't occur. You're you're just arguing with the degree to which they say it is out there mm-hmm. and the way it is used to push political agendas. Look, or, of course, anti-Semitism exists. There's a lot of antis in the world. Anti-Semitism exists, anti-fat people exist, anti-short people exist, anti-people with acne exists. Uh, you know, the question is, is it socially significant in our society? Uh, does it prevent you from getting jobs? Does it prevent you from getting access to education? Does it prevent you from getting access to housing? You know, those are the real significant indicators of whether one should attach significance to uh, a prejudice or a bias. Biases and prejudices are all over the place. As I said, there's a a bias and prejudice against virtually anything and everything. The question is whether it's socially significant in a society. And the fact of the matter is the the social significance of anti-Semitism in American society approaches zero. And we should be honest about that. American Jewry is by far and away the most spectacular success story of any ethnic group in the United States. Uh, they're already in wealth, far outstripped uh, wasps in terms of representation in the professions, in academia, uh, in uh, higher incomes, uh, on every, uh, by every index. American Jews are doing just fine, thank you. And if the whole world were doing as well as American Jews, we would have reached communism without having gone through the stage of socialism. You know, it's a very fine story. So, you know, to, to try to invoke anti-Semitism in the context of the United States, or for that matter, Europe, is preposterous. And it's deeply insulting to those who are genuinely suffering in our society. Um, you talk in your book about the, the, the history of the formation of the State of Israel, and you, you uh, try to break down some of the sort of contrived historical notions that that we generally get about it. And one of the things you talk about is that prior to the formation of what we have now as the state of Israel, that there's this notion that the area was pretty much uninhabited or that the inhabitants left voluntarily. Can, Can you talk a little about that? Well, first of all, these sorts of myths are commonplace virtually in every society where the indigenous population was exterminated or expelled or displaced. So you take the case of the United States. I don't know how old you are, but I've just hit the sorrowful age of 52. (laughs) And uh, when I was growing up, uh, we were taught that the West was a, a wilderness and a virgin land. Uh, that's how we uh, understood it. And there were these, you know, savages um, somewhere, you know, midway between the flora and fauna, in this case the fauna, and human beings who inhabited that land sparsely, but they were there. And they sort of would attack the, you know, uh, the, the uh, settlers sort of in the same way as you had to fear an attack by a bear. Those are the, we subsequently came to learn that those are called the native population. And they weren't all that sparse after all. Uh, they were, in our case, they were expelled and wiped out, a mixture of both. Uh, but that's what we were told growing up was the virgin land and the wilderness. 
And the same way in the case of Israel, the image that was projected, because this is another settler population displacing the indigenous population, the image that was projected was that it was a desert that was made to bloom by the settlers. And then there's the other, some people will say, well, it, it was inhabited, but the, 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 these people left voluntarily when the uh, uh, people who formed the state of Israel came in. Right. There's uh, all this mythology about Arab radio broadcasts instructing the Palestinians to leave and that they should return after the Arab armies had swept the Jews into, swept the, Jews into the sea. But that's all nonsense. Um, the Palestinians fled uh, because they were terrified into leaving or they were physically thrust out. I want to talk a little bit about the, the human rights record. Um, we're led to believe by um, Alan Dershowitz and others that, that Israel has a stellar human rights record, yet it really is nowhere near the top in, the, in that category. In fact, it's... Uh, well, in many ways, it is at the top. It has many unique characteristics. Let's take a few examples. Number one, Israel is the only country in the world which legalized torture. Number two, Israel was the only country in the world which legalized hostage-taking. Number three, Israel was the only country in the world except for Saddam Hussein's Iraq for a brief period, which used house demolitions as a legal form of punishment. Number four, if you take the word of Chris Hedges, the New York Times' uh, former New York Times bureau chief in Cairo, and then a, a, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, he said of all the war zones he's covered in the world, he's covered the worst. He says Israel, or the occupied territories, was the only place he had been where children are lured into being shot for sport. That's his words. So in many ways, Israel is at the top. It's at the top of the bottom. <laughs> yeah, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> yeah, the top of the bottom. So those, those are some, yeah, I mean, I'm laughing about it, but it's not funny at all. It's it's uh, it's very tragic, and uh, you also make the point in your book that there is uh, often the, the notion that the Israel-Palestine situation is complicated, but 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 that's a, a, a contrivance. It's actually uh, very simple. You say that. Uh, could you explain that? Well, uh, I would say the following: that it's rare that you have a conflict about which the historical record, the human rights record, and the um, political, the record for how to resolve the conflict, the legal and the political record, it's rare that you have so much um, uh, consensus. On the historical record, there's now not very much uh, dispute about what happened and why. On the human rights record, there's no disagreement, literally no disagreement among human rights organizations about Israel's human rights record. On the legal uh, questions, uh, the World Court recently ruled on the, the, the highest judicial body in the world, the International Court of Justice. It recently ruled on the legal questions, and the vote was 14 to 1 on all the crucial questions the one dissenting voice or vote being that of Thomas Bergenthal, the American judge on the court. And on how to resolve the conflict, uh, the uh, consensus is 
you know, it's on the order of you go to United Nations General Assembly resolutions on how to resolve the conflict. The vote is always something like 160 to 4 or 160 to 5, 160 to 6. And the dissenting countries are always the same. The United States, Israel, Palo, P-A-L-A-U, Tuvalu, T-U-V-A-L-U, Nauru, N-A-U-R-U, Micronesia, and uh, the Marshall Islands. That's it. Everyone in the world agrees in a two-state settlement, a full Israeli withdrawal from the territories it occupied in the June 67 war. The only opponents, the United States, Israel, and a few South Pacific atolls. Uh, there's a remarkable level of agreement at all levels on the Israel-Palestine conflict. It is not complicated. Uh, you also argue uh, that this this course that extreme Zionists are pushing is causing more hatred of Jews. I don't think it's a question of extreme Zionists. You know, we don't have to conjure the image of a lunatic fringe. It's the mainstream of American Jewish uh, leadership, the mainstream of Israeli society. Uh, they are the ones who are opposing the two-state uh, settlement of the conflict, and they are the main obstacle to a resolution of the conflict. There's very little substantively to distinguish, say, a Sharon from a Rabin, from a Perez, uh, you know, they're all pretty much well within the mainstream of opposing what the whole world has demanded in accordance with international law. The international law is clear. It's inadmissible to conquer and acquire territory by war. Israel conquered the West Bank, Jerusalem, and Gaza by war in 1967. They do not have one atom of sovereignty over that land. It has to be returned. But Israel doesn't want to return it, and that's the problem. Do you have any statistics on the percentage of uh, Israeli citizens who actually do favor a two-state solution? Well, remember, you have to be a little careful about the expression two-state solution. Mr. Sharon favors a two-state solution. You know, one state of Israel and a phone booth for the Palestinians with a flag over it. And I'll call that phone booth a state. A two-state settlement in accordance with international law and in accordance with the sentiment of the United Nations is a two-state settlement, meaning a full Israeli withdrawal from the territories it conquered in the June 67 war. At that level, I cannot say there's a large amount of support in Israel. Can you drum up that kind of support? Yeah, I think you can. But then you have to make the occupation hurt. You have to tell Israelis, if you want to keep all that Palestinian land, don't expect us to pay for it. And in fact, you can expect us to boycott your goods, impose sanctions, and do what we do with everybody else who's illegally occupying land. That's the consequences. So if, if we uh, would... Just cut off the aid to Israel? Look, even if we just threatened to cut off the aid, it would be all over in an hour. Israel would pack up and leave. Do you have any of the latest statistics on the amount of uh, 
money that goes from the U.S. to Israel? You know, that, those numbers are very hard. Uh, the range now is growing wider and wider between the official amount, which is about $2.5 billion, uh, and how much money goes in all sorts of different ways. Uh, but it's a very high figure. And it's impossible to imagine that Israel could survive were the United, were the United States to uh, make the threats. I don't think it would ever come to actual implementation. Just a threat, and it would be over. How much, uh, or could you talk a little bit about, about APAC and how they exert control over our government here in the U.S.? Well, I don't think they have control over the government. I don't think that's an accurate picture. Uh, how they operate, to tell you the truth, I'm not attuned to the ins and outs of how Washington works and how lobbies operate. What you can say with reasonable amount of certainty, uh, no, with a high degree of certainty, is that they make life very miserable for anyone who bucks the tide, and you're repaid handsomely if you tow the party line on Israel. You'll get lots of money, you'll get lots of support in the press, um, all the things that count if you're a politician. And if you don't support the party line, You'll be slandered, you'll be libeled, uh, all the efforts will be made to deprive you of work, to deprive you of income. Uh, they're pretty ruthless, and we can say pretty successful. I, yeah, I, I know, uh, I can't think of the names right now, but I've heard of a couple of congresspersons that, that went against the wishes of AIPAC in their next election cycle. Their opponent, you know, got a huge amount of yeah, money. Yeah, you know, there was the case of a very wonderful congressperson from Georgia, I think it was, Cynthia McKinney. Yeah. Uh, who lost her seat? Uh, I think she's back now. Uh, she was terrific. Uh, and there, you know, there, there are the better known cases. Uh, remember Charles Percy, who was, I guess, the head of the American Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, and a number of others uh, who uh, uh, lost their jobs. There was a pretty prominent book called "They Dare to Speak Out," uh, which discussed that issue. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they look. They, they're, this is not conspiratorial thinking. They're very proud of the fact. Uh, they say that's you know that's how democracy works. The gun lobby gets its way. The national medical uh, AMA gets its way. Uh, this lobby gets its way. So they say we get our way. Uh, you know, they think that's just a wonderful uh, manifestation of our democracy. Uh, but there's no disputing. I mean, it's not as if they say, oh, this is all anti-Semitism. You're conjuring up conspiracy theories of a Jewish lobby. They're proud of their successes. In yeah. fact, that's how they raise money. It's not, it's not anything hidden. It's right out in the yeah, open. It's, you it's can... right out in the open. The problem is, if you're not Jewish and you say it, then you're accused of protocols of the elders of Zion and conspiracy theories and wire-pulling. But on the other hand, they're very proud of their successes. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson speaking today with Professor Norman G. Finkelstein. We're talking about his book, Beyond Hutzpah on the Misuse of Anti-Semitism and the Abuse of History. And I'd like to remind you that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. Uh, Professor Finkelstein, there are a couple of uh, high-profile cases of Israel caught spying on the U.S. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you know, uh, I I don't really have 
a deep understanding of those questions. To me, it's a kind of it's a it's a kind of tautology because I don't see how you can spy on yourself. You know, Israel is pretty much a, an integral part of the United States in terms of foreign policy, decision making, exchanging of information, and so forth. Uh, it certainly you know it gets more aid per capita than say uh, Montana or. Uh, or Mississippi, uh, and it certainly has a more influential role in the formation of policy in the United States and everything like immigration, you know, letting in Sylvia Jury uh, during the 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, to foreign policy uh, than most states in the Union. Uh, so to my thinking, uh, it's hard to conceive this concept of spying, because to conceive the concept of spying, they would have to be in practice, a separate entity. Now, it's true, legally, they're a separate entity, but for all practical purposes, it seems to me they're so integral to how our government operates and the decisions our government makes that I really can't really understand even this notion of spying. It's like somebody from Montana spying. It doesn't make too much sense to me, but obviously at some levels of intelligence, uh, they do take the distinction between Israel and the United States seriously, and so these issues of spying come up. I, I don't think the real problem is the spying. I think the real problem is the outright coordination uh, between the United States and Israel, the extent to which uh, direct interests of Israel are becoming influential in determining U.S. policy and silencing opposition, I think those are problems. You know, the, we're all supposed to forget now that the major Jewish organizations were the main cheerleaders for the invasion of Iraq. Now, you take any other ethnic you know, or religious group, Catholics, Protestants, Italian-Americans, Irish-Americans, all of whom have lobbying organizations, ethnic organizations, some quite powerful, you know, in the case of Catholics and Protestants and so forth. None of those organizations or leaders were in the forefront supporting the war but in the case of the American Jewish Com uh, Committee, American Jewish Congress, B'nai B'rith, uh, um, Simon Wiesenthal Center, and uh, leading spokespersons of the Jewish community, they were all out there cheerleading for the war. And I think they should be held accountable for that. Uh, yes. Uh, as uh, uh, It's all been forgotten. Are you familiar with uh, PNAC, the Project for a New American Century? You know, I, I've seen it. I don't know much about it. Yeah, well, there are many people within that organization who are uh, cheerleaders for Israel and, and also cheerleaders for for the war. And, um, and now they're cheerleading for a war with Iran. Mm -hmm. And I think they should be smacked down, frankly. We have enough problems. Iran doesn't threaten anybody. Period. I, I, I agree with you. They, so, you know, when these the, the Iraq war, we just, we're still involved in, and they, they gave us these quote-unquote official reasons for the war, which we all know were now false. And so some people were went back and looked at some of these organization, organizations like PNAC, Project for a New American Century, and saw that they had designs on a war with Iraq just back in the 90s. And, and these people who were part of this group are now part of the Bush administration, many of them. Well, you know, it was a confluence of interests. Uh, the people who had the Israel agenda 
There was a confluence of interests between them and those who had an Iraq agenda and those who had an oil agenda and those who had a general uh, post-Cold War, we're going to terrify the world uh, agenda. Um, there was a confluence of interest between all of them, and that's what you know acted as the juggernaut during the war. I don't think it was any single pro-Israel interest that determined it, but certainly they were one of the main cheerleaders. So, so when people say, oh, well, we're fighting this war for Israel, you would say, well, maybe that's just one reason, but there were several. Yeah, no, that's ridiculous. Yeah, they were not fighting the war for Israel. You know, Bush doesn't do anything for Israel. Uh, they have their interests, but uh, there are other people who had their interests, and there was a confluence, and it happens that, you know, Jewish interests, <clears throat> once you're on, they're on board, there are big interests, you know, uh, uh, media, uh, money, organization. Uh, they're good, and they're proud of it, you know. Uh, one shouldn't have to hide that fact. Uh, they're, uh, they're very well organized, certainly much <laughs> better organized than the other side, you know, <laughs> that's for sure. And um, they have their act together. Mm-hmm. How has your book been received in Israel? It's not totally, they're no one's interested. They don't even no, talk about because, it. You know, Israelis have this attitude that when it comes to the Holocaust, when it comes to the Israel-Palestine conflict, we know everything, and nobody has to teach us anything. Uh, so they're not interested at all. I, I mean, I don't take it personally. And frankly, they do know, those who want to know. You don't have to tell them about the human rights record. Israel is a citizen army. They serve there. They see it all for themselves. Now, it's true, seeing it all for themselves, they still don't see anything. But, you know, that's a case of they'll never see it. You know, my late mother used to say, people used to say, oh, there are no atrocities being committed in Vietnam. And then others would say they need to be educated. And my mother says, my, my mother used to say, if they don't know now, they'll never know. Mm-hmm. Or as the old you know, British proverb used to say, adage, there are none so blind as those that will not see. Uh, and so in the case of Israelis, you know, those who want to know, know. It's not such a deep mystery. Mm-hmm. As I said, now it's true, Israelis as citizens rarely travel to the occupied territories. But as soldiers, as fathers and mothers of soldiers, as children of soldiers, it's a citizen army. They perfectly well know. It's the same thing, you know, with the, during World War II, the death camps and all of that. Now, it's true that Hitler, you know, the death camps were located in Poland, and there was an absolute, you know, public taboo. It's not like Hitler went around saying, hey, folks, we're gassing the Jews. That didn't happen. But on the other hand, as many people said, which is totally true in my opinion, there were enough soldiers on the front who were writing back letters and we're coming home that if you wanted to know, you knew. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. Germany was a totalitarian society, which Israel is not. Information was censored, which Israel is not. Uh, they never talked publicly about the final solution. That's all true. But even in a totalitarian society, it was a, a total war. The soldiers were on the front. News was coming back. In the case of Israel, 
It's a, among Jews. It's a very democratic society. They have a lively press. The soldiers are serving there. If you want to know, you know. If you don't want to know, you don't know. The U.S. is different, of course, because um, you know, Americans are not serving in the occupied territories, and many of them genuinely do not know. They really don't. I'll tell you the truth. I've studied the topic for 20 years. I was kind of shocked when I went through the human rights reports. I was kind of shocked at the sheer magnitude of the crimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was pretty amazing. Uh, the numbers of people tortured, you know, from a population, an adult male population of under a million, the number of tortured runs into the tens of thousands. It's a very high percentage of the uh, population. Uh, it, it is a ghastly record. Yeah. Do you feel that uh, the U.S., with our uh, war on terror and some of the things that are going on now and the uh, uh, exposing of the torture that, that our government is now engaging in, do you think we're heading more in that direction? Look, we're, we're, um, we are Israel, but magnified tenfold because of our power. So you take Operation Defensive Shield in, uh, 19, in 2002, the most famous uh, episode of which was the Israeli invasion of Janine. So in Janine, in Nablus, they killed uh, Palestinians. The numbers ran into the tens, 50 here, 70 there. But when you take the United States in Iraq, and you take, let's say, Najaf and Fallujah, the numbers killed ran into the hundreds, 500. When I say numbers killed, I'm talking about civilians. 500 here, 700 there. Everything Israel does, the United States does, on a, very, you know, on a magnified level of about ten times. Um, you know, as to torture, uh, uh, the, you know, the kinds of practices of the United States, the regimes it backed everywhere, you know, from, from uh, El Salvador, Guatemala, uh, Argentina, uh, now Colombia, uh, <coughs> um, uh, in uh, East Timor, uh, the kinds of torture we supported there, you know, Guatemala, that was a genocide, uh, about 100,000 Mayan Indians are killed uh, under the successive regimes we put into power. Uh, and the kinds of torture, you know, it wasn't even torture, it was just literally, uh, you know, hacking people to death. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so there's nothing new under the sun in the case of Iraq, uh, uh, I don't think. Uh, but what you do see is you no know, striking resemblances, but at a mag uh, magnified by a factor of about 10 to Israeli policies in occupied territories. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're getting most of their advice from the Israelis who really are uh, you know, experts at torture. So if you read the reports, typically when they describe the kinds of torture the U.S. inflicts, it's things like sleep deprivation, tying uh, detainees in contoured positions, uh, moving them rapidly from hot to cold, uh, you know, uh, cl climbs, um, that's all Israeli. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and, and you make a, a good point about that the, the U.S. government has been involved in this for years, the CIA and 
Latin yeah, America. You know, that's the tricks of the trade. They're torturers. <laughs> However, I do see a, a bit of a difference with the current crowd, the Bush administration. They don't seem to make much effort at all to keep it concealed. In fact, well, they're trying to... I think to... that's a big difference. I think the big difference is um, they want to legalize it. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, that's, as I told you, as I said earlier, you know, Israel was the first country in the world to legalize torture. And now Israel, the United States, is moving in the same direction of trying to, you know, legalize, using, by the way, the same language. You hear this term... <laughs> which has no meaning whatsoever in international law. They call it an unlawful combatant or an illegal combatant. There's no such concept in international law. Uh, but that's uh, um, because for the simple reason that there are no vacuum, you know, uh, the expression of Spinoza, nature abhors a vacuum. And in legal uh, life, there is no vacuum when it comes to things like prisoners. Every kind of prisoner is covered by some statute in international law. So there's no such thing as an illegal combatant, because that would mean that combatant has no, uh, there's no coverage for that combatant under international law. These are not aliens from Mars. Uh, there's cover, they, they are covered by one or another covenant under international law. Uh, and so they now inventing this category in order to, you know, deny the people in Guantanamo Bay and elsewhere uh, the rights of um, uh, protection under international law. And that's exactly what Israel did. It invented and, you know, tried to pass bills. I don't know if they were ever actually passed uh, laws on illegal combatants. These are, you know, categories which are conjured up uh, in order to evade the law. Uh, in the case... You know, the United States now, they, they uh, invent these things called rendition. You know, when I hear rendition, I think of, you know, Pavarotti performing an aria or something. That's a rendition. <laughs> uh, what is rendition? It's very simple. It's called kidnapping and torture. Yeah. That's what rendition is. It's kidnapping and torture. So they give this term rendition as if to pretend that this is a new concept for which international law has no bearing. No, it does. Just break it down to its component parts, its constituent parts. It's first kidnapping, then torturing. Right, and if these people were ever brought to an international criminal court, they would most likely be found guilty. And if they were brought to Nuremberg, they would have been found guilty and hung. Mm -hmm. It's it's a sad state of affairs that we're in. Uh, Professor Finkelstein, what is your your vision for how you'd like to see the Israel-Palestine situation in five years? Best case scenario, if everything could go the way you feel it should in a manner of justice and peace and best case scenario would be all the borders of the world disappear we all hold hands <laughs> chant om and then sing one round of we are the world <laughs> that would be the best case scenario <laughs> okay well we can visualize that but um, real realistically in, in five years uh, okay now let's move away from best case scenario to something which is possible and under the circumstances, uh, let's say, 
I can't call it desirable, but something we can live with. And that would be a full Israeli withdrawal from the occupied territories, Palestinians able to establish a relatively independent state uh, on their sovereign territory, and for Palestinians and Israelis to learn to live with each other as neighbors, which I consider not at all utopian. You know, I am 52 years old, as I keep telling myself, and I've told you twice. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't look at the world through rose-tinted glasses. I wish I could be more optimistic than I am, but I'm not. I've seen too much and read too much. But I have had the good fortune over the past 20 years of almost every summer going to live in the occupied territories. I have very close friends in a Fawar refugee camp outside Hebron. Uh, they are Palestinians. Everyone there knows I'm Jewish. And when I mean everyone, I mean everyone in the refugee camp, everywhere where I travel, because I keep coming back. <clears throat> Nobody ever comments on the fact that I'm Jewish. Nobody cares that I'm Jewish. It's just Norm's back. Now, some people aren't thrilled that Norm's back. <laughs> but it's Norm that's back. It's not the Jew who's back. It's not, you know, uh, the Yuda or anything like their Yuda. No, it's just Norm is back, even though they know I'm Jewish. If you show decency, if you show decency, if you show compassion, if you show generosity, and most of all, if you're fair, F-A-I-R, if you're fair, uh, it's not difficult for people to get along, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, Rodney King asked, can't we all get along? Well, you know, when Lincoln Stephens famously went to Russia in 1917 or 19, he came back and he said, I have seen the future and it works. Well, he was wrong. But I could say I've come back from the occupied territories now for 20 years, and I could say I have seen the future and we can get along. About that, I remain confident. Well, that's a good uh, note to wrap up the show here on. I want to thank you so much for being with us, Professor Finkelstein. My pleasure. And your book, it's published by University of California Press? Yes, as of now. As of now. <laughs> and that is Beyond Hutzpah, <laughs> Beyond Hutzpah on the Misuse of Anti-Semitism and the Abuse of History. And your website is normanfinkelstein.com? Yeah. Okay, and that's F-I-N-K-E-L-S-T-E-I-N. That sounds fine. <laughs> Thanks again for being with us. My pleasure. All right, we're wrapping up Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson.